Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Hello and welcome to the first FT Science podcast of 2011. My studio guest to start the year is Fiona Fox, who has run the Science Media Centre in London since its foundation in 2002. With Fiona, I'm going to examine the role the media play in disseminating science to the public and to look forward to some of the big stories that may be coming in 2011. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. Before I start talking to Fiona, I should declare a personal interest. I am a great fan of the Science Media Centre, which I think has done more than anything else to improve UK science journalism over the past decade. I'm a regular user of the SMC, and I serve on its external advisory board. But Fiona, for people who don't know the SMC... Could you begin by telling us what you do? Yes, of course, and thank you for that very nice introduction. Well, we were set up in 2002, basically after a lot of stuff had gone wrong, a lot of big science stories like BSE, the mad cow disease, GM crops, um, MMR, and there were all these huge media frenzies about science in which the scientific community didn't engage very effectively, and that was quite a strong consensus. They just didn't do it very well when it was messy and controversial. I remember all too well the GM genetically modified foods debate where the scientists just lay low, let Monsanto mismanage the PR and it was all a disaster. Yes, sorry, go on. Absolutely. Um, And that's everybody's memory. And of course, the price was very high because after a year of that kind of debate, the British public and policymakers said no to a new technology. So we were a direct result of those kind of stories. And what's your role in making this happen? I'm the director of the centre. When stories like volcanic ash hit or swine flu is erupting in Mexico, we have a database now of 3,000 scientific experts. So we're able to offer journalists very, very quick, easy access to the best possible science on these stories. Probably one of the best years we've had at the Science Media Centre was two years ago in the battle over human-animal hybrid embryos for stem cell research, an area of research that was actually banned by the Department of Health in response to a public consultation in which the public said this is a step too far, the yuck factor basically. And stem cell scientists who had already applied for a licence were absolutely amazed that they were actually going to be prevented from doing their research and they came out in droves with all their funding agencies and MRC, the Wellcome Trust, the Royal Society, 200 medical research charities and the stem cell scientists themselves like Robin Lover Badge, Stephen Minger, Lyle Armstrong and they did back-to-back interviews for about eight months of that year. They literally recognised that for that year putting the media in the public dialogue and debates with parliamentarians was more important than staying in their lab. This year, getting a bit more topical, the beginning of 2010 was marked by the Science Media Centre feeling pretty miserable about the climate gate 
affair, where the combination of the UEA emails and the mistakes found in the IPCC report did have a lot of climate researchers doing exactly what we'd seen eight years ago with GM. They, they were refusing to engage with the media because they didn't want to be asked if the UEA emails were accurate. They didn't want to be asked whether Pachauri should resign as head of the IPCC. So I think for the first time in some years, we, we were quite depressed and felt that some of these researchers were turning their back on you know, exactly the moment when they needed to come out and say, I don't want to comment on Pachauri, but I can tell you this, this and this about the strength of climate science. And you've succeeded, I think, in bringing the climate scientists out over the yes, last 12 months. we did. We fought hard. We, we actually ran a big event and appealed to many of the senior scientists to step up to the plate, and they did. And I think that's when things started to change around March, April last year. And then quite soon after that, you then had the inquiries coming out from the Science and Technology Committee, Muir-Russell report, which were exonerating the scientists anyway. On the brink of 2011, what are the biggest issues in your mind now? I think climate change now, we we really need to get back to the science. Some ways, what's now called climate gate, was a good corrective. Quite a lot of scientists were scared to be open about the uncertainties because they might be seized on by sceptics and, and used to oppose the case for climate change. And so quite a few scientists will admit to you privately that they were not being so open about the gaps in their knowledge. Now I think many of them have considered that that was wrong, that that was the wrong approach. And so now I think now that we've had all the inquiries, ClimateGate really is over. The IPCC report and Phil Jones and UEA have largely won out in terms of the strength of their science. Now I think we need to start filling those gaps and I'm looking forward to the Science Media Centre hosting lots of new studies and papers in science and nature and and actually filling in the gaps and and communicating the, the uncertainties around climate science more clearly. On the domestic science policy front, obviously a big issue in 2010, which will carry through to this year, was new government, coalition spending cuts, scientists rally to save the funding, which they've more or less done. How do you see the domestic science funding and political scene? Well, I think that's a really interesting issue for 2011. I think 2010, of course, was marked by victory and triumph, where I think the, the I remember the morning that Vince Cable came out on the Today programme and, and inaccurately described 45% of scientific research as not being of high quality. And I have never seen a community rise and, and awaken like the scientific community. They were livid. By the time I got in the office, there were hundreds of scientists. And from that day, really, for the next two or three months, the scientific community found their voice on funding cuts and made an incredibly powerful case that cutting science would be a disaster because it's not a cost, it is an investment. And actually investing in science could be the key to the future recovery. So having made that argument and having persuaded the government not to cut science, science now has to deliver. And I think we need some very, very grown-up debates within the scientific community about where best to spend that money to make good on that pledge to the government that science can be part of the recovery. So that will be interesting. And, of course, where the money that is there actually goes and where the real cut of 10%, where that will hit and and what kind of impact that will have. Well, the simple answer is that medical research will continue to do a bit better than all the others. And I think we can expect that to carry on for the next few years in the UK and indeed elsewhere, because in the US, the National Institutes of Health are getting an increasing share of the US science spending as well. 
Um, I suppose an issue there is just a certain amount of fear within the scientific community about the impact of some of Andrew Lansley's changes. Now, there are always some completely unexpected things that come up. In 2010, volcanic ash causing chaos during the spring, then the BP oil spill. How do you think scientists have responded to these things that just come out of the blue and will come out of the blue again this year? Incredibly well, because the scientific community know what we specialise in rapid reaction to breaking stories. Increasingly, science press officers throughout the country are phoning us and saying, we've got the leading expert on volcanic ash. Uh, She's here, she's available, she's willing to talk. So we've done really, really well on those breaking stories. I think what generally happens is when they get complicated. So with swine flu, uh, we did brilliantly on the immediate reaction. A year on, there were big questions about whether it was oversold by the scientific community. And then it was a bit more difficult. People were really nervous nervous about the fact that the media was turning against science. So we ran a big briefing on the first anniversary of swine flu. Well, there are bound to be medical emergencies this year. And regardless of the politics of global warming and climate change, there are bound to be weather stories. We're bound to be asked, is it anything to do with global warming, this flood, this drought, this heat wave, this deep freeze? And scientists, I think, just have to keep on saying, no, you can't pin a particular event on climate change, but yes, it makes these events more likely to happen. And I hope the scientists won't get bored with saying that, just have to keep making the message time and time and time again. I agree, I agree. And I think that's what you've just described is exactly what the Science Media Centre believes in, that these... All of these big stories are opportunities. And if there is a ridiculous amount of snow over Christmas and the media want to talk about the relationship between snow and climate change, then that's an opportunity. And scientists just have to be careful, exactly as you say, that they don't start attributing events to climate change until we know, but use the opportunity of any radio opportunity or any discussion with a journalist to say what they do know about climate change and increase the body of knowledge in society. Now, we've been talking about unpredictable things that might happen in 2011. There are some things that are more certain. One, for example, is that clinical trials of embryonic and fetal stem cell therapies are underway in patients. We know there'll be some results there. People will expect them sooner than they're probably going to come. And I think the worst thing that could happen is some unexpected adverse reaction that would throw the whole field into crisis. I think we're going to have to be patient on that. There'll be a lot of demand for progress reports on these trials. How how do you see the stem cell scene in 2011? That's a really really interesting question. Um, And in fact, the the way you've posed it there reminds me of the gene therapy um, issue, which was about six or seven years ago, where scientists really were excited about the prospects for gene therapy. Um, And then, yes, the whole field was set back by two or three people in trials contracting leukaemia. And actually, none of those people died from leukaemia. They were all treated. There was huge excitement in 2010 when they announced, Geron in the States announced the first embryonic stem cell trial for spinal cord injury. Some of the papers missed out that very important nuance that these were safety trials, not efficacy trials. I also think Pete Coffey, who's the wonderful stem cell scientist at University College London, who is working with Pfizer on embryonic stem cell trials for macular degeneration, I think this will be the year that he will start. So we'll have a first UK ES stem trial, stem cell trial, which will be exciting. 
and away from biomedicine and the environment, it's going to be a big year for physics. We're going to get some results, I hope, from the LHC Atom Smasher CERN. It's been running smoothly for a year. They've got trillions or, I don't know, gazillions of megabytes of data. I hope we'll get something about Higgs particles and so on. (laughs) So there'll be some good theoretical physics results, which we haven't had for a while. And another area is space. We were supposed to see the last US space shuttle flights in 2010, but because of delays, we're going to have the last two in 2011. So it's going to be an end of an era. I think that's almost certain to happen. Yes. I think on CERN, there's a real excitement now. As you say, it's been up and running for a year, but it had its teething problems. I think the big significant change in 2011 will be that we will start seeing quite a large number of scientific papers published from the scientists at CERN and some of them about medical science and it'll be kind of a big challenge to the way we've looked at medical science where we expect it to come from medical science institutions where some of the breakthroughs will be coming from particle physics places like the Large Hadron Collider so that'll be exciting. Well let's hope that the balance of science news in 2011 is on the positive side without too much hype rather than on the bad and disastrous side. And that's all we have time for today. Please join us again next week for more tales from the world of science. Our regular studio guests, Diana Garnham and Andrew Jack, will be back then. But for now, I'd like to thank Fiona Fox very much for joining me today. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.